Our scripture lesson is taken from 1 Peter chapter 5. So I exhort the elders among you as a fellow elder and a witness of the sufferings of Christ as well as a partaker of the glory that is going to be revealed. Shepherd the flock of God that is among you, exercising oversight, not under compulsion, but willingly as God would have you, not for shameful gain, but eagerly, not domineering over those in your charge, but being examples to the flock. And when the chief shepherd appears, you will receive the unfading crown of glory. Likewise, you who are younger, be subject to your elders. Clothe yourselves, all of you, with humility toward one another, for God opposes the proud, but gives grace to the humble. This is the word of the Lord. Lord, help me, your unworthy and incompetent servant, to open the scriptures with clarity, with vigor, with conciseness, with clarity, with compelling application by the power of the Holy Spirit, that each of us may hear the voice of the Good Shepherd speaking through the written word in our hearts, saying, Come to me. For Jesus' sake we pray. Amen. Well, I want to direct your attention to this passage in God's word, 1 Peter chapter 5, because I think it says so much to us about the work of a pastor. He says, So I exhort the elders among you. Now, here's a question to ask. Is there any place in the entirety of the New Testament where a local church or a city had less than one elder? And the answer is, I'll write a check for $1,000 if you can show that to me. All churches, all cities had a plurality of elders, never one person always more than one. He says, I exhort the elders among you as a fellow elder, as a fellow elder. Think of that for a moment. This is Peter. Peter says, I exhort you as a fellow elder. He's not standing on his laurels. He's not full of pomposity and pride and arrogance in his position. He said, I'm one of you. He didn't elevate himself above others as your fellow elder. And then he says something interesting. He says, and a witness of the sufferings of Christ. When Peter says that, he takes us back to the most shameful time in his whole life. You know how full of pride Peter was. Peter was assured, if everybody tucks his tail and runs away, I'm not. I'm going to stick by you, Lord. I'm going to be faithful to you. And yet Jesus turns to him and says, Peter, before the cock crows, you're going to deny three times that you know me. And he did. All three times he denied Christ. And you know, in one of the gospel accounts, he actually sees Jesus and Jesus cuts his eyes towards him. 
And when Jesus looks in the eyes of Jesus, when Peter looks in the eyes of Jesus, he's overwhelmed with sorrow. He feels he can never be forgiven again. He feels that he has committed apostasy, that he's committed the unpardonable sin, and all is over for him. But you know, the beautiful thing is he writes and reminds us here of a great truth. He's a witness of the sufferings of Christ. And that reminds him, as it should remind us, that each one of us here is a moral failure. All of us are morally bankrupt if we have to stand before God on our own righteousness and our own merits. Peter is a man who witnessed the sufferings of Christ, but was brought back. Why was Peter brought back? Jesus said, I prayed for thee that thy faith fail not. I kind of like Old English because not only did Old English give a singular and a plural third person, he, she, it, and they. But it also gave a singular and a plural for the second person. Why did Peter return to Christ? Why did he respond to the gospel? Because I have prayed for thee. I want you to know this, the most critical thing of all, I've prayed for thee. I pray that you may know that Christ prayed for thee. For you as an individual. He did pray for the world in one sense. And yet in his high priestly prayer he says, I pray not for the world, but for those that you've given me. Why did Peter return to Christ and Judas didn't? Why did Peter return to Christ and Judas goes to the high priest and the Sanhedrin and takes the money? And he says, I've betrayed innocent blood. And in a great example of pastoral care. They said to him, what's that to us? And so he threw the money down. Judas was brokenhearted. Judas was in despair. Judas knew great remorse and sorrow. But sorrow that's not relieved by the prayers of the Lord Jesus is suicidal and leads to death. And so Judas hangs himself. So Peter reminds his audience that he is a sinner. He's a witness of the sufferings of Christ. And that's what gives him such hope, such confidence, because he knew the Lord Jesus had restored him. I've prayed for thee that thy faith fail not. And when you're restored, strengthen your brothers. And that's what Peter sets out to do. Peter is an example of a humble man. Your fellow elder, not the big muckety-muck, your fellow elder. And he wants to see that in his fellow elders. Now notice what he says. He goes on and he adds, as well as a partaker of the glory that is going to be revealed. You know, this world is going to come to an end. And this world is going to come to an end in a beautiful way for those who know the Lord Jesus Christ. That's the great purpose of River Community Church, that you would know the Lord Jesus Christ personally, that you would know that He is your Savior, that you would know that He died for your sins, that you would know that He is at the right hand of the Father on October the 3rd, 2021, praying for you today. He's praying for you. 
Why? Because the world that we live in is a world that's characterized by what? Well, he says, a witness of the sufferings of Christ. The sufferings of Christ let us know that suffering is not a strange or an odd thing. Suffering is the lot of every human being in this world, no matter who you are, from the highest to the lowest. But there's coming a glorious day. There's coming a day when the trumpet will sound. There's coming a day when the archangel will shout. There's coming a day when the great shepherd of the sheep will return from heaven for his own and take us to be with him as earth experiences the wrath of God, the glory that will be revealed. Now he says to these elders, he says, shepherd the flock of God. That reminds us that all elders are pastors. Because the word for a pastor is the idea of shepherding sheep. And so all elders are pastors. And we need to remember this. There's not some big boss preacher up here, and there are little flunky elders underneath him. That's not the way it is. This is vital. This is essential. Here is Peter, the apostle Peter. The one who was privileged to confess Christ on the day of Pentecost as the first preacher. The one who was privileged along with the Apostle John to lead the Samaritans into a united faith along with the Jewish church. The one who was privileged in Acts 10 to lead the first Gentile convert. Here is this man of great privilege but great humility. And he says, shepherd the flock. I want you to remember this, Trey, that you're an elder. You're not a super elder. We make a distinction between teaching elders and ruling elders, but really in the Bible, such a distinction is not a rigid distinction. Some elders, because of opportunity, are given the opportunity to serve full-time as an elder. So we think of teaching elders as those who are full-time elders who devote themselves to the work of the ministry. But teaching elders are not up here in some super category. There's only one person who's in that super category. That's the sheep, the chief shepherd. He says, the chief shepherd in verse 4, and when the chief shepherd appears, you will receive the unfading crown of glory. And I want to just give you some demonstrations from Scripture backing up what I've said this passage teaches. First, if you would turn to the left, over to Titus chapter 1. Titus chapter 1. We see some things here that reflect other places in the New Testament. Titus chapter 1. Look at verse 5. Titus 1.5. Paul writes to Titus, and he says, This is why I left you in Crete so that you might put what remained into order and appoint elders in every town as I directed you. So what do we see here? Paul has this elder named Titus who's been commissioned by Paul himself to duplicate himself. In other words, a pastor's job is to duplicate himself in the lives of other elders. And so what he has to do is he has to find people he can leave God's Word with, that he can instruct, that he can teach, so that they do what he does. 
That doesn't mean that everybody needs necessarily to be able to stand in a pulpit and without notes go on and on blethering and blethering. But it does mean that every elder needs to be able to open up the Bible and say, this is what we believe and this is why we believe it. So all elders in that sense are to be teaching elders. We're, to set, uh, we're given then the responsibility of teaching. It's just that some are singled out and given that opportunity by being supported by the church. And we call those people pastors or teaching elders. But the important truth here is an equality. Notice what he says here in verse 5 again. This is why I left you in Crete, so that you might put what remained into order. In other words, there were things that were out of order. The first order of business is to make sure they're shepherds for the sheep, and the shepherds are the elders. Put them in order. Get them in order. Get them established. People need to be shepherded. People are like sheep. Congregations are compared to sheep. They're not just anybody's sheep. They're Jesus' sheep for whom he died. And so he goes on and he says, in every town. Notice again, plurality. There's no boss elder. There's no buck elder. There's no chief elder. The only chief elder is the Lord Jesus himself, the chief shepherd. And then he says, he gives some qualifications. If anyone is above reproach, the husband of one wife, his children are believers and not open to a charge of debauchery or insubordination. And I'll say that anyone who has ever successfully raised children uh, from the time they began to need deodorant until the time they got married uh, has questions about himself in terms of his qualifications. People who think their children are just perfect children when they're two or three and obey like Pavlov's dogs to conditioning, has never raised children through their teen years, particularly in the West. And so this doesn't mean, again, that people don't have trouble with their kids. I remember one time I went to my elders and I offered to resign as a pastor. I said, I don't think that I meet the criteria. And they wisely got counseling. I began to understand something in 1989 about being a husband and being a father, which helped me be a better pastor. You can't make people do things. You can't come down and say, you will do this because I'm your daddy. Can't do that. Doesn't work that way. They may conform and then they'll sneak around. You got to win the hearts. You've got to win the heart of a child. And the job of the elder is to win the hearts of God's people, to win their hearts. How do they do that? Well, we keep reading here for a moment. And he says, he says, 4, verse 7, an overseer. What is that word? Now, remember, he's talking about Titus' job in Crete was to find men he could appoint to be elders over the church. Now notice what he says here in verse 7, for an overseer. The Greek word there is the word from which we get Episcopalian, Episcopalian, just as we get the word Presbyterian from the Greek word presbyteros, elder, bishop. And this is the thing we have to say. Every elder is a bishop. And in the church of the New Testament, there's no bishop up here with the little elders down here. 
That evolved over the next 300 years when the church was persecuted by Rome. But the New Testament church is a church of collegial authority. What do I mean by collegial authority? This is very important because there are certain traditions where the preacher, where the pastor is in effect a pope. I remember once hearing a preacher preach and he was talking about how you have to take control over your deacons. He said, I had all my deacons stand up one Sunday morning. And I pointed out to this one, you're fired, you're fired, and you're fired. What is that? I I think the, the example of Peter, you know, your fellow elder. That's not the way it's done. There's no boss in the church of Christ except the Lord Jesus Christ, the chief shepherd, the role model that somehow or another the pastor, the preacher, is the boss and the elders are just to do what the preacher says to do. That's wrong. It's foreign to the New Testament. It's collegial. What does it mean to be collegial? It means no elder in this church, including Trey, who is about to become your pastor. No elder in this church has authority as an individual. The elders of the church have authority collegially. They make decisions together. There's no boss. They discuss things. They hammer them out. In the 40 years I served the church in Alexandria... We never acted unless we had a unanimous vote as elders. What does that mean? It means we didn't act much. (laughs) We practiced collegiality. Well, if we're not all together, brothers, we need to go home and pray some more. Because God's ideal for the church of Christ is unity. Because where there's unity, Psalm 133, God commands His blessing. Don't you want the commanded blessing of God on River Community Church? The commanded blessing of God, why it's like the oil poured out on the head of Aaron that dripped down his beard. It's like the wonderful cold snow on Mount Hermon. Uh, So refreshing especially in summer. Don't you want River Community to be a place where people are refreshed, where they want to come, where people don't say, oh, no, i got to go to church, where they say, oh, boy, this is the Lord's Day. What a privilege to be able to gather with God's people, where there's unity and where there is common commitment. And so he says, a bishop, he says, as God's steward, must be above reproach, must not be arrogant or quick-tempered or a drunkard or violent or greedy for grain, for gain, but hospitable, a lover of the good. So we go back to 1 Peter, and we, and we see this in 1 Peter 5. Christ is the boss. Jesus Christ is the king and the head of the church. There is no other head in Zion but the Lord Jesus Christ, who is the King of kings and Lord of lords. And the way that a session functions, because various denominations call their bodies of elders different things, the way that a local group of elders works, again, is with group authority, group decisions. It's common in the evangelical Presbyterian church that one particular elder, the pastor, 
has responsibility over the worship service. But his responsibility over the worship service is not, he's over here, and the ruling elders are over here, and we're going to do what I tell you to do. Because I'm the boss. And you know how well that works with teams. We do what we have to do. As a group, we make group decisions, we decide. And that's why the most important thing that an elder can do is what? Pray. Show me a group of elders who are not people of prayer, and I will show you a church that's ready to go off the cliff. Show me a group of elders that don't seek the mind of Christ in the Scriptures. I'll show you a church that's going to be a train wreck. Show me a session where people really don't think prayer is vital, and I'll show you a church that's going to split. Because God speaks to us through His Word. And God speaking to us through His Word doesn't simply mean that we read words in the Bible and understand what the Bible says meant back then. It means that by the work of the Holy Spirit, we come to an understanding of how that once for all given to the saints, faith revealed in Scripture alone, the only rule of faith in life, how it applies to us today. Praying elders should be characterized by people who are willing to die to themselves. We're going to look real fast at the end of this uh, back in 1 Peter 5. He says, shepherd in verse 2, 1 Peter 5, 2, the flock of God that's among you, exercising oversight, being bishops, not under compulsion, but willingly as God would have you, not for shameful gain. All you have to do to expound that phrase is to turn on TV. Not for shameful gain. But eagerly, not domineering over those in your charge. Not domineering. I'm reminded of the domineering diatrophies that John writes about. The domineering diatrophies. The man who wields power. I got it now. I'm going to show you what you're going to do. No, actually, that's what elders are to do. They are to show you what to do. And that's what we see here in verse 3. Not domineering over those in your charge, but being examples to the flock. What's the example of the great shepherd? The Lord Jesus Christ in Philippians 2, though he was in every sense God Almighty, yet he made himself to be of no account. He put other people ahead of himself. Think of who the Lord Jesus is, the eternal Son of the eternal God, begotten, not made. Yet he leaves the glory of heaven, and he comes to this earth, taking on himself the very form of a servant. If you were to come in this church, and Jesus himself were here, and the toilet were dirty, you'd find him in the bathroom scrubbing the toilet. Think about it. That's the example of the chief shepherd. The chief shepherd made himself of no account, of no reputation. He let go of his prerogatives, his privileges, his rights. And he came to earth to serve others. So the great example of the Lord Jesus Christ is a person who, though he was entitled to everything, forgot about his rights and looked to your needs and put your needs ahead of his own welfare. I'll say this, it always is disturbing when I say it. 
The Lord Jesus Christ made himself a doormat for you and me. And the only way you can get to heaven is to wipe your feet on that divine human doormat, the Lord Jesus Christ. What can take wash away my sins? Nothing but the blood of Jesus. Jesus made himself of no account for your sake because Jesus loves you. He loves you as an individual. He wants you to know him. He wants to know that you to know that your sins are forgiven. And the power that's wielded in the church of the living God by a plurality of elders who rule as a college rather than as individuals with individual power and authority is a group that sets the example of putting other people ahead of themselves. Wow. Don't you want to be like Jesus? Not really. No, in our flesh, I want to be the boss. I want to be in charge. I want you to think I'm really somebody. That's flesh, isn't it? We all struggle with flesh. There's a little diatrophies in all of us. But what we want is that by the power of the Holy Spirit, more and more and more in this life, we would be like Jesus, loving other people, accounting them as more important than ourselves. May God grant it be so. For Jesus' sake, may we pray. Lord, you're a good God, and you love us. You loved us so much that the second person of the eternal Trinity left the glory of heaven to become a real human being just like us, to die on the cross as our substitute, to rise again. We thank you that it's by his righteous life and perfect sacrifice for our sins that we go to heaven. We plead with you by the power of the Holy Spirit, you would make us more and more like Jesus. And we pray for all of the elders of this church, and particularly for Trey. Grant that we may attempt to walk in the footsteps of Jesus. For Jesus' sake, amen.